Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly, Akiratska, and me. I'm Howard Parker. In today's podcast, we're continuing with part two of two parts with Katie Daly and her interview of Dobro Luthier, Paul Beard of Beer Guitars in Hagerstown, Maryland. We hear Paul talk a lot more about his relationship with Mike Aldridge, Jerry Douglas, Rob Ikes, the album Three Bells, and Paul's vision for the future of the Dobro-style resonator guitar. Here's Katie Daly with Paul Beard. It took how many years? Seven years oh, to come like up with it? seven years. It was like uh-huh. seven years of trying to work with an instrument, trying to, trying to get the sound that he wanted. Well, because he said... If I, you said, what sound are you looking for? And you said, he said, warm. Warm, warm and rich. Yeah. And and so yeah, so that's that's the thing. When we talk about music, we we are forced to use um, adjectives that to describe music. But unfortunately, we're not all speaking the same language. One adjective to you doesn't mean the same thing as that same adjective to me. So because when you brought him the first guitar you made, he said, this sounds. Uh, the first instrument he he said, um, oh boy, that's that's a long time ago. Muddy. He told me, yeah, he said too muddy, and it was too too uh, low, too many low mids and low end, and but he said, and then he'd say, but I want to be warm, and so I'm thinking warm is kind of on the low end spectrum. And so every instrument that I would make him as a prototype would be what I would consider warm. And then uh, this went on for like seven years. I would just keep making guitars and taking them to him. And he would say, well, I like this about it, and I like the third string, but I'm not crazy about the high, the high string or whatever. And I was making all these small body, regal-sized guitars, like his original guitar that he used on all the recordings in the seldom scene. And finally, I just, I just kind of threw my hands up and said, I'm just going to make him something that I, I want to make. And I made this large body guitar made out of birch plywood like his old guitar. And as soon as he played it, he goes, that's it. That's it. That's the sound. And, of course, that wasn't warm at all in my, in my estimation. To me, that was a real distinct, very, um, all the notes were extremely separated and very clear and um, that's not what I would have described as warm. But to him, that's what he, in his hands, he made that guitar warm. Mm-hmm. So there was this um, communication um, barrier. And I don't know how else we could have done it you know, differently other than the way we did it. In this seven years of not getting warm, what were you doing otherwise? I mean, were you continuing to do repairs, or were you building well, for other people? No, or? I was building for other people. Mm-hmm. I started in '85, in 1985, when I built my first two instruments. I went to Gettysburg, again, the Gettysburg Festival, because that was in my backyard. And I was playing uh, in the parking lot at Gettysburg with that very first instrument. And right away, a guy walked up and said, hey, where'd you get that? Well, I made it. Would you make me one? So that first year, I got two orders for guitars just from being at festivals that I was going to pick at. So may I ask, uh, can you give me a round number of how many orders Beard Guitar gets for 2018? Or twenty, the end of 2017? Um, it's probably going to be, this year it will be over 300. 
Yeah, it's like one a day. Wow. So at that point, you've got this guitar. He likes it. You like it. Does he just take that one off your hands, or do you go home and build another one? How did this progress with Mike? Um, I made four prototypes. Uh, so once I figured out the sound that he wanted, then I started playing with um, body shapes and some cosmetic things. And he, he knew exactly, just like his playing and his fashion, he knew exactly what he wanted. And he would tell me, I want a black guitar, I want it with this type of binding, I want um, hearts and flowers inlay, which is really unusual for a guitar. You normally only see that on a banjo. On a banjo. Right. But Mike started playing banjo. Right. And um, so what I did then is I made four prototypes. After he played that first one, which was a prototype, I made four more prototypes that all varied slightly. And then he decided on, out of those four, which one he liked, and he, and he kept that one. And that's the one he played. Uh, and then that's what we used as a model to base all of the the other uh, uh, builds for that bear his name. All right, so the Mike Aldridge guitar done by, you know, Beard Guitars, and give me the specifications of that. It's black and... It was a large, it was a, a what I call my E-body, which uh, is a large body, it's, it's a little thicker. It kind of looks like a little dreadnought guitar, but it's not as big as a dreadnought. Um, it's a little thicker in body depth. It was made of, uh, or it is made of birch plywood, which is made in Finland. It's a very high quality birch plywood. Mm -hmm. It's not like something you go here in the States and buy at Lowe's. Um, it's imported from Finland. Um, it has a mahogany neck, ebony fretboard, uh, his version of the hearts and flowers inlay, and his signature up on the peg head. Now, when you say his versions of the hearts and flowers, you know, Mike was an illustrator. Did he design the, the flower? He did. They're slightly different than a Gibson hearts and flower, mm -hmm. and it was his take on it. He, I remember uh, he told me he wanted hearts and flowers, and I said, like a Gibson banjo? He said, no, let me go home and I'll, I'll draw that up. I want them to be mine. So he, he would draw it up by hand and give it to me, and then we would we would cut the pearl. And as you manufactured these, he played every one. He can't, would come up he once did. a week? He did. Uh, every time I got a batch of them made, um, we would make like six at a time, and he would come up to the shop. He lived in Silver Springs about an hour and a half from Hagerstown, and he would drive up and play every guitar. And if there was anything about that guitar he didn't like, I would take it back to the workbench, and rework it to to get it to the point where he was happy with. He was very particular, and again, that came through in his playing. That was Mike, Mike Aldridge. He he knew what he wanted, and he was very particular about it. And he wanted to make sure it was that way. He was very concerned about uh, the customer. Um, not getting something exactly the way he wanted it, and he and and I really admired him. One of the many things I admired him for, but that was very prominent in his business. So over these, let's say, a couple times a month that he would come up and spend time with you and all, you got to be very good friends. It wasn't so much that he was your idol, but right. you knew him on a personal basis. When he received the Distinguished Achievement Award at IBMA one year, and 
I remember calling him. He didn't want to go, and I called him. I said, you got to go. He said, do I have to make a speech? I said, oh, my gosh, yes. You have to make a speech? Come on. And if I remember correctly, he referred to you as his best friend. Yeah. Yeah, that was... uh... Uh, yeah, Howard and I were in the audience that day. I, I was shocked. I was shocked. Yeah. We were sitting next to one another. All I remember, you were looking at me and I were looking at you. And both, what the hell just happened? Yeah, I, I just, um, I was shocked. Um, he, uh, we, we, did, we did develop quite a friendship. And, um, uh, you know, he didn't express that stuff on a regular basis. He was not a guy to give you the touchy-feely feelings of his inner psyche or anything like that. He was he was pretty black and white. He was kind of like the way he'd talk about food. He loves everything as long as it's meat and potatoes. <laughs> and that was Mike Aldridge. He did, uh, that was that was a shock at, at the IBMA. Mm-hmm. So um, when Mike passed, how many years has it been now? Five years. Five years? Yeah, five years. Um, I imagine he had amassed a large collection of instruments and stuff, and he left you his guitar mm-hmm. uh, that was on all of the, what, the first five albums of the Seldom Scene, what he played with Cliff Waldron and all. Um, that album, that that guitar that made you fall in love with that sound. Yes. Yeah. Was that a big surprise, or did he tell you he was going to leave it to you, or um, ask which one you wanted? He he basically uh, sent me an email, and well, he asked me personally if I would handle his estate. There were there were things in that estate that he wanted taken care of. This instrument would go to this person. This instrument would go. So he asked me if I would do that, and I, I said, of course. That's that's a no brainer. Um, I'll take care of that for you, and um, that was it. That was all it said. And then, and then, closer to to the end of his life, he sent me this email, and I, I opened it up, and it said something like, um, you, you know, the where the instruments were to go, and he had a spreadsheet. And I'm reading down. And How many instruments were there? Oh, there were like um, maybe 18, hmm. maybe. And they were various things. There was an electric bass in there, and a, and a Martin guitar, and pedal steels. Uh, pedal steels, quite a few pedal steels. And so he had them all written out, and and which ones he wanted to be sold to go to Elise, his wife, and which ones he he wanted to make sure that people got. And about halfway down the list, I'm reading this, and it and it says 401, which is the serial number of that old guitar. And do- got, it was a Dobro. Yeah, Dobro, yeah. And 401, is that a manufacturer number? Or what that was uh, Dobro's serial number for that particular guitar, mm-hmm. 401. And that's the one that's on all the old records, the one that I fell in love with, the sound of, and he had my name next to it. And I just about fell over. And I had to read that email a couple times, and it took me a while. I, I think I waited like a day or two to call him because I, I just didn't, uh, I didn't know what to say to him. I just was shocked. I had no idea, um, and I did call him, and he said, "Yeah, he said I want you to have that guitar." Um, he said something to the effect of uh, just being having his own model, and you know, Beard Guitars making making those guitars for him. That he 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 loved that process. He enjoyed coming to the shop. He enjoyed our friendship. 
Um, but he he really liked that in in that season of his life that it was kind of a, a reemergence for him. You know, he had the early career with with the Selim scene and the music, and then later in life he had this signature guitar, and um, that was really important to him. Of course, I'm thinking of it as I'm just. And that's my way of showing some gratitude for what he did for me. And, um, you know, I was honored to make a guitar for him and honored to have a, a signature model for him. But, he, um, yeah, he, he put that in his will that that guitar went to me. So that's my prize, prize memory and possession. And that's the sound I think most of us associate with Mike. Yes, is the sound of that guitar. It's that guitar. sound of that guitar with Mike playing it. With Mike playing it. Yeah. Mike could make a shoebox sound really good. He could play any... I've heard him do it over and over. People would come up to him at the festivals and bring this dobro to him, to him and say, would you play my dobro? And, of course, Mike would play it, and it would sound amazing. Did you ever play 401? Yes. And? It doesn't sound like Mike. <laughs> There's a disconnect there, I guess. So you don't play it? No, I do. Actually, I take that guitar. I've gigged with that guitar. I don't. I, it doesn't make sense to me to have that sitting in a case, hidden away somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I, I let anybody play it. I think that uh, it just doesn't make sense to me to have an old instrument like that with a lot of history to it and just sitting in a case in somebody's basement. So your responsibility is to share something that belonged to somebody who yeah. inspired you. And it's it, yes, and it's interesting because to this day I'll have people come to the shop or to come to the house. Um, people like Andy Hall with the infamous String Dusters and Fred Travers with the Seldom Scene, um, and they'll they'll say, "Can I can I see the guitar?" And I'll pull it out, and then they don't want to ask, and I'll say, "Well, you know, you can play it," <laughs> but everybody wants to play that guitar, and um, that to me that's a that's a big source of enjoyment and um, it makes you feel good that somebody enjoys that guitar as well so anybody wants you know it's just one of those things that um, I don't want it to set in the case but I do gig with it occasionally how are the tuning machines on that thing? I'm going to have to replace them I'm going to have to pull them off the tuning machines are so old and they're plastic knobs from the 30s, mm -hmm. a type of plastic, and they deteriorate over age. And they will crumble. They will literally disintegrate in your hands. But you'll keep them. But what I want to do is, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to pull them off and put a replacement set on and just save the original ones. Okay. And will you chronicle that? Yeah. Yeah, I will. So a man who manufactures how many guitars a year? 300. 300 a year. Mm-hmm. Your favorite and most prized possession is? Oh, that's that guitar. Yeah. Yeah, that guitar's, uh, like I said, it's. I can pinpoint uh, Mike Aldridge and that guitar to the very reason that I'm in business and doing what I do today. It wouldn't, wouldn't have happened any other way. And I told him that. And he always seemed surprised. <laughs> and so I would find that I'd have to tell him that over and over.
because I was waiting for another response. <laughs> just, it just never came. Like what response did you want him to say? I, I kind of wanted him to say, I know. <laughs> but he but, never did. No, no, he wouldn't do that. Well, he was a great guy. Yeah. And and he was an inspiration to a, a lot of people. A lot mm-hmm. of, not just Dobro players, but yeah. a mm-hmm. lot of people. We um, the, the original guitars had Quarterman cones in them. Now, I wasn't spinning cones at what the time. What kind of cones? Quarterman, John Quarterman. Mm-hmm. And he worked at Dobro, and he developed a cone that became famous in the 80s with the R.Q. Jones guitars. And um, so the original Mike Aldridge beard guitars had Quarterman cones. And I started, uh, uh, I was apprenticing with the gentleman that spun all the cones uh, out in L.A., and... and um, I was learning to spin cones on my own, so I wanted to develop a cone as good or if not better than a quarterman. And so Mike would come up to the shop and I would just spin a cone on the lathe and put it in his guitar and he'd listen to it. And it was that same, it was like deja vu, the same thing all over again. Well, it sounds good on the high end, but it doesn't sound good on the low. So we did that back and forth. But we worked on that for so long and finally I developed the legend cone and I named it after Mike. Mm-hmm. You know, Mike is the legend, Larry the legend. And so um, after many, many trips to Hagerstown and and R&D and, and practice and, and, and me fidgeting on this lathe making these cones, I came up with a slightly different cone and Mike loved it. It sounded... I've asked you this before, and of course, the, a lot of it is where Josh and those guys had to teach it themselves because there was no YouTube and there were no video instruction yeah. things, and so they had to teach themselves. Is it is it the that the players today have made that many leaps and bounds, or is it that the the actual instrument? Which is leapfrogging over the other? I mean, I look at the new Josh Swift model guitar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks like it's something out of a science fiction. It looks so industrial and mm-hmm. beautiful. It's purple. It's just, it looks like the future. Mm-hmm. And yet, you're still doing the, you just started this new line of... The Deco. The Deco. The deco Which yeah. looks like an old um, Dobro. Right. And sounds so loud and strong and all. It's not going to end. It's going to be that you're inspired by other people, or they have ideas that you bounce off each other. Well, yes. Um, two things. One, I'm always uh, trying to make something new. That that's kind of my job at Beard Guitars. I'm always researching and developing. Um, new ideas that I have. I'm always listening to players to see what they're interested in. And then the second thing is what you just touched on, and that is the new players have developed a certain style or technique or um, expression of music, and they have ideas. And then when we get together and we discuss it, um, these new players, like Josh Swift, will, will mention something that he's looking for. And then it's my job to try to figure out a way to um, bring that out of the instrument. And that's what I enjoy doing now. Um, But it is a combination of the instrument and the player. And, And you also mentioned something about YouTube. I mean, to the point now, 
when I was a kid or when I was learning to play dobro, I still picked the needle up off of the record and listened for a couple bars and tried to emulate that. And now you can go to YouTube and punch in any song that you want to learn and somebody's showing you note for note how to play it. So it makes sense that we have eight-year-olds that can play like crazy. But these new musicians, these modern musicians that are taking it to another level are definitely putting in their own expression and their own um, spin on it and out of that come new ideas in the instrument world as well. And Josh Swift is an example of that. Jerry Douglas was an example of that, or is an example of that. The Jerry Douglas model that I make is totally different than any other guitar that um, had been made to that time. Um, so that that's fun and that's exciting. But they are they are um, pretty much hand in hand with each other. I don't know which one comes first, but. Mm -hmm. When the Three Bells album came out and I first listened to it, I tried to tell who's taking which break. Yeah. And Jerry would say, oh, you can tell. I'd yeah. say, well, I can't tell always. Yeah. Some, you know, could you tell them apart? Uh, well, I was there for the recording. Oh, so you know. So, okay. yeah. so yes, I could tell them apart. Um, on, on a couple of those cuts, they're playing the old guitars. Um, and on the album cover, of course, is Mike's two old guitars, the one that I have, and the sister to that, and then uh, one of Josh's old guitars. And so, Where is the sister to Mike's guitar? That guitar is in Japan. Mm -hmm. That was uh, sold to a gentleman in uh, Japan, and that was part of this... Um, Part of the liquidation of his estate, he wanted that one sold, and and that guitar is much newer looking. It's really in great condition because he didn't quite play it as much, but it was in the later years of the album scene. Um, so he played that guitar in the in the late '80s and, and '90s. Um, but that that found a good home in in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that album. Uh, the three of them, and then there's a couple of places on that album, the Three Bells, where they're they're almost playing like Mike, um, Rob, and, and Jerry are kind of um, being a, a backup or a um, uh, how should I say it? They're they're complementing what he's doing, and it and they're not overstepping, and so those are the cuts that are really hard to tell who's playing what instrument. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that was a that was a great record. I, uh, that Mike was not feeling well for that whole album. That was that was when he was in poor health, and um, I would. Uh, he asked me to come down and pick him up and drive him to to the studio and pick Jerry up and take Jerry and Rob, you know. And it was just uh, the four of us. It was a lot of fun. Well, speaking of your peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that he made when you took your first lesson, uh, Jerry talks about how Mike would bring lunch for everybody to the studio. <laughs> it's a side of Mike that just it, it, it's incongruous with what your image is of him. It is hilarious because we were we were sitting there at the studio and it's time for lunch and they're talking about going. Jerry knows some fantastic sushi restaurant that's there Mike locally. Mike would eat sushi. And Mike, Mike again was meat and potatoes or apparently peanut butter and jelly, and Mike would just pull out this brown paper bag and set it up on the table. And, and lunch for everybody. Yeah, and Rob and Jerry would look at each other and. Uh, there's Mike eating his, eating his sandwich. <laughs> what a great guy. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? 
No, it's just, uh, it's, it's been an amazing, um, for me personally, it's just been an amazing trip, an amazing adventure. Um, had no idea it was going to turn out this way. I thought I was going to work on airplanes the rest of my life. And then I heard Mike Aldridge, and that changed everything. And I heard that guitar. And um, didn't expect that at all. Didn't expect to be building instruments. I thought I was going to be a musician. And um, it all worked. It worked out because this is where I want to be. And if they anybody wants to look up Beard Guitar, it's at what's the website? Just BeardGuitars.com. That was Katie Daly with Paul Beard of Beard Guitars in Hagerstown, Maryland. For more information about Beard Guitars, on the web, www.beardguitars.com. And by the way, that's B-E-A-R-D, beardguitars.com. Beard Guitars is also active on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you check back often. A transcript of Parts 1 and 2 of the Paul Beard interview can be found in the archives at Bluegrass Today at bluegrasstoday.com.